All right, let me preface by saying this is uh, one of a series of papers uh, investigating the metaphysics of value uh, of social whole like Polis in Plato and Aristotle. There's a sort of companion piece on the Republic uh, that came out a number of years ago. So I've sort of done this bit for Plato's Republic already, and this is about the um, uh, the eudaimony of the polis. Uh, I've got a, a piece on uh, the common good in Aristotle that's come out in the very recent Cambridge Companion to Aristotle's Politics. So that's in a way a companion piece to this. I'll say a few words at the end about a puzzle that arises for me about the relationship between the eudaimony of the polis and uh, the koinon symphoron or whatever. Um, uh, uh, there's a difficulty here uh, that I don't know how to solve, so I'll bring that up. The happiness of the city, uh, the eudaimony of the polis, is a central concept in Aristotle's political philosophy. For example, in the beginning of his Nicomachean Ethics, Aristotle says that the ultimate end of human action is the good of the city. At the beginning of his uh, discussion of the ideal regime, he says that the happy city is the one that um, is best and acts nobly. Uh, the second chapter of Book 7 is devoted to the question whether the happiness of the individual and the happiness of the city are the same or different. Uh, so it, it's in part to argue that when he talks about the eudaimony of the polis, he means it not metaphorically but literally. He intends to predicate a genuine property of eudaimonia of a genuine subject, the polis, and I'll explain, explore some philosophical implications of this. Interpreters of Aristotle are divided on how seriously to take this phrase. It's useful to distinguish three phrase approaches. Metaphor, some take it as clear or even obvious that the eudaimony of the polis is just a metaphor. For Aristotle, as for sensible philosophers today, um, only um, individuals, human or divine, can be happy. Um, I take it as a methodological principle that anything that only sensible philosophers today would think is probably not uh, attributable to the Greeks. Um, uh, reduction. Uh, some interpreters avoid saying that Aristotle is speaking metaphorically while also denying that by the happiness of the polis, Aristotle means to predicate a genuine property of a genuine object. Instead, they use the language of reduction. The polis is nothing but, i.e. is reducible to, its citizens, their actions, and so on. This approach is uh, called individualism because it holds that only individuals have fundamental value. This is all very nice and Lockean, but doesn't seem to be very Greek. There are some more problems uh, with this reductionist approach I'll talk about. And then there's realism, uh, which I subscribe to. The, this group of scholars attributes Aristotle's happiness of the city and similar predicates as uh, Aristotle attributing a real irreducible property of a real irreducible subject. Insofar as this realism is an anti-reductionism, it can also be called holism. Like reductionism, realism about the city and its happiness has different varieties. Um, this is shown by the vague and changing labels that many reductionist scholars use to characterize their opponents. Uh, sometimes they say that the, deny that the polis is an individual organism or a natural organism or a kind of super entity with an interest of its own, that being meant to be bad. Um, what would be an extreme holist, anti-individualist version of realism about the polis? Perhaps this. Metaphysically, the polis is an animate, living, organic substance that has states of character and makes decisions. The individual human being is dependent on the city in a strong sense, so that outside of the city he cannot exist. Evaluatively, the individual human being has no intrinsic value, 
but rather a citizen's entire value lies in that citizen's contribution to the welfare of the city. This bears some resemblance to um, what Karl Popper attributed to Plato. Uh, I have looked, and I can't find any interpreter of Aristotle uh, of any age that's come close to, that's held this view. Ernest Barker actually comes somewhat close. He's the closest, to my surprise, of anyone that I've been able to find. Uh, moreover, it's not an integrated view. It consists of six or eight different claims uh, that can be mixed and matched. Uh, the realist view I'll defend, I'm not going to explore variations of, of realisms, is that the polis is not a substance. It's not animate in the strict sense that it does not have a soul. However, the polis is alive. It has a life. I think both bios and zoe. It is an organic being in the sense that it has functional parts. And it has states of character and makes decisions that are not reducible to the characters and decisions of its citizens. Individual citizens have their own intrinsic value, which is largely but not entirely independent of the city in which they live. On the other hand, the city as such has intrinsic value that is not reducible to the value of its individual citizens. The value of its citizens to the city is partly instrumental and partly intrinsic or constitutive. Um, the life of the city includes the life of its citizens. Perhaps in our individualist post-positivist age, it's natural to feel uncomfortable with attributing human properties to a state. But in Aristotle's cultural context, it was perfectly natural to attribute happiness to cities and describe them as making choices and taking actions. You find the Eudaimony of the Polis in Herodotus. Uh, against this background, when ancient Greek authors, even philosophical ones, apply happy and decides to cities, the baseline assumption, I would argue, um, just taking it in its cultural context, must be that they're making an ordinary predication of an attribute of a genuine subject. It's a lot easier to be rigorously metaphysical individualist if you come after Carnap. The burden of proof rests on those scholars who claim that such attributes are intended metaphorically or a special in a special reductive sense, I think. I mean, the thesis, uh, I'll, I'll make use of an argument from silence a few times in this paper, and those are inherently weak, but they convinced me, so I'll throw them out. I'll, I'll throw them out. Um, here, the thesis that Aristotle intends the happiness of the city metaphorically is conclusively ruled out, in my eyes, by the observation, simple observation that it's a technical, uh, important technical term in his philosophy. One thing I'll go into now in a little bit of detail is that the happiness of the city cannot mean the happiness of its citizens which some of the more extreme individualists will say or come close to saying, people like Blastos in his interpretation of Plato. Mm. And this is shown by the way Aristotle poses certain questions. Aristotle asks at the beginning of Politics 7.1 and again at 7.13 whether the eudaimony of the individual and the eudaimony of the city are the same or different. If the happiness of the city meant the happiness of the citizens, Aristotle would have an immediate reply, yes, they're the same, because uh, it just follows from the terms, right? The happiness of the city just is the happiness of its citizens. Uh, again, the fact that he poses this as a serious philosophical question implies for me that he's being realist about it. So what about the substantive philosophical thesis that the eudaimony of the city just is the, the eudaimony of the individual citizens? And you find this stated as interpretation both of Plato and Aristotle, Julianus did it for Plato, Blastos did it for Plato, Richard Kraut has done it for Aristotle, though sometimes he's hedged. Uh, I may uh, quote one of his hedging remarks later. But, but this claim is not very clear. 
I mean, I take it to be a slogan, sort of, and, and just by itself, it's, it's not even a view. Does this, is this supposed to mean that the eudaimony of the city is identical with the eudaimony of all of its citizens? So that if one, of, one citizen becomes miserable, the city is therefore no longer, uh, no longer has eudaimonia? I mean, that's what it means if it's literally identical with the happiness of all of them, right? If not, uh, then how does one determine how many or what proportion of the citizens must be happy in order for the city to be happy? To, to take this slogan and make it into a doctrine takes a lot of work and adding a lot of precision. My view is that Aristotle an never answers this question because for him the eudaimony of the city is a structural or holistic fact about the city and does not depend on any particular proportion of the citizens being happy. Uh, now I'll move uh, to a different place, to the beginning of the Nicomachean Ethics, where I think there's an important text for holism uh, that I've, and I, but I've, in this series of papers, I've published a paper on the importance of uh, Nicomachean Ethics 1 2, uh, when Aristotle um, says that the um, ultimate goal of human action is the good of the city. Uh, I think he's referring to that as a holistic property. He asks what the ultimate end is and what the science of, or capacity is which secures it, um, as we all know from reading the beginning of the Nicomachean Ethics. It's often interpreted weakly, this chapter, as if Aristotle's point were only that human beings are naturally suited to lead lives of general sociability. But I think what this argument implies is much stronger. It is that if the human good, the ultimate end of human action, is the uh, good of the city, then when each citizen asks, what's the ultimate goal of my actions, the correct answer should be the good or eudaimonia of my polis. Put in more modern terms, the true purpose of each person's life is the good of his country. Um, uh, that's a little too crude. You have to make it a little more sophisticated, but uh, I just make the basic point. Uh, so in 1-2, as I see it, I mean, the standard reading of the Copican Ethics is that the book is about the ultimate end of human action, namely the welfare of the individual agent. And I think uh, Nicomachean Ethics 1-2 simply is incompatible with that reading and makes essential reference to the good of the city as, you know, uh, as a holistic property, but then also as the ultimate end of human action stated right there at the beginning of, of the NE. All right, now I'll, I'll uh, say a word about the definition of happiness. In Book 7, Aristotle gives several verbally, several verbally different but philosophically equivalent accounts of what the happiness of the city consists in. Uh, in seven one, he says, uh, the happy city is, uh, yeah, I see, I, I, I don't have all my the passages in the handout marked in my paper, but uh, I've given you the text from one one, uh, and now I'm going on to, to Book 7, Chapter 1. Uh, the happy city is the one that is best and acts nobly. But it's impossible for those who do not do noble things to act nobly. And there is no noble action of a man or a city without virtue and wisdom. Okay, so the happiest city is one that acts, that is best and acts nobly. I take him to be uh, assuming here there is such a thing as a happy city. And that city is going to have to act and act well. And it's going to have to have virtue. Uh, so you have a whole moral psychology at the, at the, at the political level. Eudaimony is the good life. I'm switching back and forth between English and Greek terms. Aristotle assumes that any entity, individual, city, or god that can be happy has a life. Thus, um, if a city can uh, have eudaimonia, it has a life. 
Aristotle begins Book 7 with a question, which life is both cho choice-worthy? This is, in a way, a strange question, since Aristotle had answered it already in the NE. One distinctive feature of the Politics 7 treatment is that Aristotle discusses not only what's the best life for an individual, but also the best life for a city. Therefore, one must first agree about which life, I'm quoting now, is most choice-worthy for everyone passing, and next about whether the life that is most choice-worthy in common, koine, is the same as one that is more choice-worthy for each separately, chorus, or different. There, there are a number of ways in which I haven't fully worked out and researched the issues that I'm raising in this paper, and something I haven't done uh, that uh, I don't know of anyone doing in, in print, and let me know if you know of, of a treatment, uh, but is to go through all the places where Aristotle contrasts uh, se uh, separately or in common and see if you can come with, up with a unified interpretation of what he's, what that contrast amounts to, a similar contrast at the beginning of, of uh, in the Comic Union Ethics 1-2. Anyway, the best life for each set one separately must be the best life for an individual. Whether the life that is more ch most choice-worthy in common is the lives of all the individuals taken together, okay, some kind of muriological sum, or the life of the city, more holistic reading, is not immediately clear. And the research that I just mentioned would, is, would be necessary in order to um, pin that down with security. Uh, but for the moment, I'm going to say however one interprets that line, it's clear that in the following discussion, Aristotle means to discuss <coughs> the life of the city, considered as a single entity with its citizens as parts. Aristotle discusses the question whether the political life or the philosophical life is better for individuals and for cities. So uh, a question that I once got in a discussion, uh, a version of this paper was, well, so when he's talking about the bios of the city, he's talking about famous three choice of lives, right? It's sort of style of life. And that's true, except I think he's also talking about life as in the sense of being alive, because you can't have a style of life unless you, unless you have a life. Um, it'd be interesting if someone thought they could come in between those and, and deny, accept one and deny the other. But, um, uh, so I don't think it matters for the claim that the polis um, is in some sense alive, that he's mainly talking here about modes of life. If the life of the city were reducible to the lives of the citizens, then the political life for a city should consist in the fact that all or most citizens devote themselves to political activity. But that's not what Aristotle says. Instead, he assumes that the political life for a city consists in that city's being devoted to ruling over its neighboring cities. The political life is the same for an individual and a city in this sense. The city taken holistically as an entity capable of actions, rules over other cities, just as an individual person rules over other individuals. Aristotle's view of the contemplative or philosophical life for a city is also clearly holistic. In 7.3, he repeats his claim that the active life is the same for the whole city and for each individual, uh, 1325b14. He argues that contemplation is a kind of activity, uh, obviously, he's using language a little bit differently than he does in the Comician Ethics, um, where I mean, it says contemplation is a kind of proxis, and so it's slightly deviant terminology. But um, a city de devoted to the contemplative life is not one in which most citizens are philosophers. Rather, it's an asocial life, 
the life of a city which has no or few interactions with other cities. Its contemplative activity consists in the fact that parts of the city have relations with each other. 25b26 and following. Again, this is a structural or holistic fact of a city. So now move on to virtues and virtuous action. According to Aristotle, a good city has virtues and acts virtuously. Recall uh, the sentence I quoted from, from the first chapter of Book 7, a happy city is one that is best and acts nobly. Noble actions of a happy city are not a large number of noble actions performed by its thousands of citizens as individual actors. The noble action of a, city, uh, of a happy city is the action of the city itself. Um, Aristotle continues at 1327b31 and following, it's impossible for those who do not do noble things to act nobly. And there is no noble action of a man or a city without virtue and wisdom. Uh, the courage, justice, and wisdom of a city have the same capacity and form as that which each human being shares when he is called just, wise, and temperate. Um, I'll signal here an obvious parallel without saying a word about it in this paper. So, according to Plato in the Republic, uh, virtues are the same in the city and in the individual. Aristotle very well knew that text. Um, what's the relationship between what Aristotle says here and Plato's doctrine in the Republic? I just signal that as an obvious uh, comparison to make and, and research and work out. I'm not going to say anything about it here. Uh, the courage, justice, and other virtues of the individual have counterparts in the courage, justice, and other virtues of the city itself. But the city's virtue does not consist in some numbers of citizens, the number of the citizens having that virtue. Perhaps it's true, as Aristotle says in his criticism of Plato in Book 2, that a city will not normally be virtuous unless most or all of its citizens are virtuous. But if a city is made up of virtuous citizens except for a small group of bad men, and those men are in power and rule the city, uh, the actions of the city will be bad. Conversely, if most or all, or even all but one of the citizens are virtuous or, of mixed, or are vicious or of mixed character, but the city is ruled by the one wise and supremely virtuous man, the city will be wise in its actions noble. A city which rules over a large empire, whose inhabitants have no independent power, is a successful tyrannical city. The individual tyrant rules over the inhabitants of a city in his own interest um, or, and or against their will. The tyrannical city rules over other cities, including, of course, their surrounding territory, the individual citizens of the tyrannical city have no such relation, either to the other cities in the empire or to all the subject peoples of the empire considered as a mass of individuals. So uh, what about virtuous actions? What is it for the city to choose and to act? Are the choices and actions of the city reducible to the actions of its citizens? You can predict by now that my answer is no. Uh, they're not. Of course, the city's choices and actions occur by and through the choices and actions result uh, by and through the choices and actions of individual citizens. But these individual choices and actions result in choices and actions of the city only when the individuals are carrying out appropriate constitutional roles. Um, generally, the city decides and acts through the decisions and actions of individuals who make up its ruling part. Uh, I go into here a little bit, something I'll just mention and go on. This obviously uh, evokes the passages where Aristotle says that you identify something with its ruling part. 
uh, per, a person truly is his ruling part. Um, the city truly is its ruling part. Um, I just mentioned that. The responsible people in government decide to distribute food and workers actually hand it out. But in virtue of their offices, the decisions and actions of these people are actions and decisions of the city itself. So sometimes people of reductionist inclination, um, recognizing these somewhat uncomfortable facts and language, um, sort of hedge. And I'll quote from um, Richard Kraut's uh, commentary on Book 7 and 8 of the, in, in the Oxford, in, in the, the Clarendon Aristotle translations. He says, what Aristotle needs to say is that a citizen is virtuous only if its citizens, acting on behalf of the community, act virtuously. Uh, Kraut, I think, thinks Aristotle needs to say that in order to make clear his individualism, his underlying individualism disguised by sloppy language in the text. But, but Kraut's rephrasing is not individualist. If the city is virtuous, if it's citizens acting on behalf of the community, this has got essential reference to the social whole. This is not individualist anymore. Uh, but, you know, uh, this is him trying to stay nice and Lockean in his reading of, of Aristotle, trying to save Aristotle against himself. But once you put in, in virtue of their office, in the individualist move is, is, is undone. Or, or so I claim. Aristotle remarks in 7.9 that the city contains both the military and also the element that makes decisions about what's advantageous and judgments about what's just, and these are evidently parts of the city most of all. I cite to signal that. This metaphysical claim is parallel to Aristotle's statement that the person is his noose most of all because the intellect is the ruling part in uh, Nicomachean and Ethics 9.8. There he says, it's interesting, one word he uses, just as a city or any other organized entity, systema, seems to be above all it's the most authoritative element within it, the same is true of the individual he, um, human being. Here the reasoning, or and it may, if it is analogical, I don't think it's analogical reasoning, because I think he, he means both of these as part of his theory. But anyway, the analogical reasoning in this context is going from, from the political level down to the individual here in the, in the Nicomachean Ethics. In 7.13, Aristotle says what I've been urging him today to say. He says, a city's being excellent is no longer a matter of fortune, but of knowledge and choice. And surely a city is excellent because the citizens who share in the political system are excellent. The because here translates a simple dative, which leaves room to ask, what is this dative doing? In what way is the excellence of these citizens responsible for the excellence of the city? It's not, again, that their excellence simply is the excellence of the city, that the excellence of the city simply reduces to some ag aggregate of citizen excellence. No, the excellence, um, this is me um, saying what Aristotle ought to mean by that data. going to have a coherent view. The excellence of the citizens is responsible for the excellence of the city because by virtue of their office, the decisions of these citizens are the decisions of the city. Let me say that again. The excellence of the citizens is responsible for the excellence of the city because by virtue of their office, the decisions of these citizens are the decisions of the city. Now I come to uh, what I think of as a fun part of the paper. It's the funnest for me. And there are people in this room who are much greater experts on these texts than I am. So, so I, I, 
uh, I acknowledge that as I head off into theology and cosmology. This section is titled Unusual Lives in Aristotle. The city has a life, bios, and it has virtues and vices, and it deliberates and decides. If we take these claims literally, does that force us to conclude that the city is a living organism in the same sense that an individual human being is a living organism? This philosophical difficulty, or aporia, is closely connected with a difficulty about substance. Individual human beings are primary substances because they're living organisms. If a city is a living organism, and by organism I just mean here something that is functionally, or, you know, uh, uh, functionally organized, then it must also be a substance by this reasoning. But fundamental principle from Aristotle's metaphysics, no substance is composed of substances. No fully actual sub no, no actual substances composed of actual substances. But the city is composed of individual citizens. Therefore, it cannot be that the city and the individual human beings who compose it are all substances. Now, pretty clearly, uh, individual human beings have a greater claim to be substances than Locke does, or than so the city does, so the city cannot be a substance. I mean, just as Aristotle hadn't read his Locke, Aristotle had also not read his Hegel. But then it seems like the city can't be a loving substance either. The key to solving both problems, and, you know, this is my speculative solution that I um, offer to you, is that a city has life but not a soul. Aristotle frequently talks of the life of a city and its virtues and so forth, but he never says that it has a soul. In Politics 7, Aristotle often compares individuals with cities. It's striking that when discussing human individuals in that book, Aristotle often refers to their souls uh, or to the relation between soul and body. When he, re when he turns to the city, he uses terms like happiness, virtue, and vice and action, but he drops all mention of soul. Um, it seems to me this must be intentional. So, again, I'm using an argument for silence. When he talks to the individual, he uses soul. In the same chapter, in the, in the, in the parallel paragraph of discussion, he doesn't use the word soul, so I infer uh, that he doesn't attribute a soul to the polis, even though he attributes virtue and so on. So if I'm right that this is all intentional, then Aristotle doesn't see a contradiction here. And this is not so strange as you might think. Because the city is not the only entity in Aristotle with life but not a soul. Um, I'll leave aside the question about whether um, uh, things like, like the family can be happy or unhappy. But there is in Aristotle at least one other example of an entirely different type. Namely, in Metaphysics um, 12, Aristotle discusses separate intellects, the movers, who are divine and lead supremely happy lives. But he never says they have souls. Now, he doesn't deny that they, they have souls either. This is another one of my, I told him, I, this is a paper that contains many more arguments from silence than is common or comfortable. Uh, what occurs is the same pattern we saw for Politics 7. <coughs> Speaking of the prime mover, Aristotle says, and life, Zoe, also belongs to God, for the actuality of thought is life, and God is that actuality, and God's essential actuality is life most good and eternal. We say, therefore, that God is a living being, Zoe, Eternal, most good, so that zoe and duration, continuous and eternal, belong to God, for this is God. Now, there's evidently there's a scholarly disagreement on whether we should attribute soul to the prime mover. The main argument in favor, as far as I've been able to pick it up, is that the prime movers, that part of the prime movers being a soul, is that the prime mover is an intelligence, and um, 
Noose is a soul function, so he must have soul. But anyway, it, I mean, uh, without being a specialist in these texts, um, it seems to me quite plausible that the prime mover does not have soul. Um, and in that case, uh, the city is not, you're not uh, attributing to Aristotle something unique and outrageous in saying that Apollos has life but not a soul, because there are other analogous unusual lives in Aristotle. And when you turn to Dianima, of course, you can find grounds to, to uh, explain this. A divine intelligence doesn't fit any of the definitions that Aristotle gives of soul. Consider the one uh, uh, at Dianima 2.1.4.12a.27, this famous, famous, uh, the soul is the first actuality of a natural body with the potentiality of having life, and a body of this kind has organs. From this definition, it follows that no immaterial entity can have or be a soul precisely because it's bodiless. Without a body, there's nothing for the soul to actualize. Given this definition, it's obvious that the separate intelligence of metaphysics lambda 7 can't be a soul. Now I move on to another possible instance of this unusual life. There's a notorious controversy about whether the anima includes an immaterial being that is intellect but not soul, namely the se separate active intellect of 3-5. Um, Aristotle says, thought is separate, impassable, unmixed, since its essential nature is activity. When separated, it alone is just what it is, and this above uh, is, is immortal and eternal, and so on. Now, what exactly he means by separate noose has been controversial among Aristotle scholars for centuries. I don't wish to take a stand on this or wade into it. I will say on one plausible interpretation, line of interpretation, Aristotle is here speaking of a single being, separate noose, which thinks the same thoughts, thought or thoughts eternally. This noose is described in language very much like what he uses in Metaphysics Lambda 7. If Aristotle is speaking of an eternal separate noose in this passage, then this noose also leads an unusual life. It thinks, but it's not part of any soul, nor, does, nor is it itself soul. God and the city are sort of opposite ends, in a way, of, in, in their reason why they fail to qualify for entities with soul. Um, the, the pure intelligences and, the, and cities are alive but soulless for opposite reasons. A pure intelligence is too simple for soul. It lacks the internal complexity needed for the distinction between soul and body. A city, on the other hand, is too complex for soul. Its parts are not matter for a single substance, but are rather human beings who are separate substances. I'll just, in sort of good conscience, mention one other passage, uh, and again, people in this room are much greater experts on this than me, that might create a little problem. Uh, in Politics, politics 7.3, uh, Aristotle compares the life of the city to that, uh, to God or to the whole cosmos. So he seems to imply maybe that the cosmos is in this category. The God and the cosmos, kalos echein, they're well off, though their activities, praxis, are wholly internal to themselves, and so on. This seems to imply that the cosmos has a life. The problem, however, is that Aristotle denies that the cosmos, the entire physical universe, has a soul or a life in De Cairo, Book 2, Chapter 1. Plato and the Timaeus, I've been alluding to expertise in the room that exceeds my own in this area, describes a whole world, describes a world animal. The cosmos is alive and has a soul. Aristotle in De Cairo rejects this view. I think the solution to this difficulty is to suppose that where in Politics 7, Aristotle 
talks about the cosmos, he, he means heaven. And the heaven, a celestial sphere, sphere is alive and, and has a soul. So it's, it's got a life, but it's not an unusual life in my sense, um, the heaven. Okay, um, I've got a bit of a medium-sized section here on uh, why the polis is not a substance. Let me just say, I do think that Aristotle faces and feels philosophical pressures in the direction of saying that the polis is a substance. And then you know, his metaphysical principles about combination just cause him to resist that pressure, but I think you know, there are pressures there. I mean, uh, other reasons why he can't say that uh, that the city is a substance. I mean, the people who make up a polis are not spatially contiguous and attached. If you think about um, uh, kinds of unity in metaphysics, Yota, it would be, if you wanted the polis to be a substance, it would be really useful if several thousand people were stuck to each other with glue. Okay? Um, and then they might have the kind of unity that would allow them to be a single substance. Uh, but since they aren't, by this fairly elementary standard in Yota. To reprise again in slightly different language what I was saying before about the contrast, God lacks soul because he's immaterial and lacks body altogether. The city, on the other hand, lacks a body because it contains too many bodies. The city is made up of individual human beings, each a distinctively distinct hylomorphic substance. Uh, now there's more to be said to flesh out this view and one thing, you, you, would, you would want to do some action theory, metaphysics of action. Like I've been trying to do some metaphysics of value here, uh, which is a thing I like to do because I like metaphysics and I like ethics. And so the best of it all is metaphysics of value. And so what is the relation, myriological or otherwise, between the actions of the city and the actions of the individual human beings? I mean, this is then a subject you could write a paper on to sort of fill out that view. Um, in some sense, the actions, the city, have actions of individual citizens as components when the king or the legislature declares war. Right? Individual people with authority take actions, and um, that their doing so sort of embodies the city's taking action. Now to the common good, my final sort of topic, uh, the relation between the eudaimony of the polis um, and uh, the uh, koinon agathon, or the koine simpharon. Politics 3, 6 through 7, um, he gives, I think, the most important text on the common good. Um, he says, it's quite a piece of it, uh, uh, what's the purpose by which the city is constituted Human beings are by nature a political animal. That's why, uh, even when they do not need each other's help, they no longer, they nevertheless desire to live together. Though it is also true that the common benefit brings them together to the extent that it contributes some part of living well, zain kalos, to each. This is above all the telos. Um, then, of everyone, whether in common, koine, or separately, that's another of these passages I said. It, it would be good to have uh, a, a piece of a paper by somebody, for example, me, some perhaps, if I get around to it, uh, comparing all these passages where he contrasts in common and separately um, and seeing if there's a consistent distinction throughout. I haven't done all that work, done pieces of it. One thing to point out about this passage is the strict universality of the city's concern. It contributes to each and everyone, common or separately. Each member participates in the community for the sake of the good life for himself. Any member who perceives that the community takes no interest in his welfare, 
or who believe, believes that he has no benefit from it, will have a reason to withdraw. The second reason is a matter of justice. Anyone who contributes to the well-being of others through participation in the political community has a claim on the community to receive a similar benefit in return. Now, although there's strict universality of what I will call political concern, Aristotle does not imply that the city must is obligated to succeed in making each of its members completely happy, or that they would be justified in expecting it to. What brings people together in the city is the common good, quote, insofar as they each obtain some part, meros, of living well. The goal of the political community is specified by the maximal fulfillment of the motives which animate. For that reason, the Aristotelian common good is not the provision of a certain set of necessary conditions for happiness, such as security and prosperity and education. As I recall, that's sort of a John Finnis reading of the common good in Aristotle. But, but rather complete happiness itself. I mean, that's, that's the, that's the goal. City isn't obliged to reach that, but that's the goal. Thus, the Aristotelian idea that the political community comes together and persists for the sake of the good life suggests that the Aristotelian common good as goal, is nothing less than the complete happiness for all members of the community, or perhaps more accurately, since politics can't change human nature, as much of the good life for every member of the community as each person's inborn character and abilities permit. So I think from this passage and others that, what, that Aristotle's notion of the common good actually is distributive. It, is, it refers to the welfare of all the citizens. Another interpretation of the common good, uh, which I held before I got around to trying to write this paper for the Cambridge Companion on, on the common good, concluded I'd been wrong, uh, was that uh, the, uh, the common good and the happiness of the city are substantively identical, different concepts, but they're the same thing. But I've just argued that the diamond of, of the city is a structural holistic fact of the city. And if the common good is distributively the welfare of all the individuals, then they are not either um, in meaning or in philosophical substance the same. So the common good, Aristotle's common good is the happiness or welfare of all the citizens. His conception of the eudaimony of the city is a genuinely holistic notion, according to which the city is a structural, structured whole made up of citizens. This city acts well or badly and has virtues and vices. This analysis leads me to the conclusion that the common good and the good or happiness of the city are not the same. This is an unhappy result, I think. For example, Aristotle says, common enough thought, that um, the aim of the ruler is the good of the city. I mean, that's Nicomachean Ethics 1-2. The aim of the good ruler is um, the common good, Aristotle says, when he's contrasting good from bad regimes. So, the aim of the ruler, these two are, I've just established, these two are different. Aristotle says the aim of the ruler is A. Elsewhere he says the aim of the ruler is B. Well, which is it? I don't know what it is, but I'm asking you for help. 